have a collect call from an inmate at the Washington Correctional Center. To accept the call, press 5. There's nothing like waking up to the sound of clacking and buzzing as the doors crack in the morning after count clears. Waking up to the reality of life in prison. For some, it is just a stop along their journey, a milepost, an experience. For others, it is a revolving door, in and out, in and out, and that's their way of life, stuck in the cycle, pulling and eating away at them. And then for some, it becomes their destination as the hammer came down and that judge issued them a death sentence. The slow way, by way of life in prison. This is the life of a lifer by Taylor Conley. Hello, greetings everyone. My name is Leona Abraham Brando and I am the host for Blog Talk Radio. Today we have on the show with us Bill Daly, who is an incarcerated individual who has been in prison on a life sentence for the last 36 years. Bill has a story to tell and I hope and pray that everyone will listen closely to what he has to say. Prisoners in America today are serving life and life without parole sentencing when they do not have to be. There are so many that are being so productive while incarcerated, in addition to those in the free, that have been in the free will, that have made mistakes that are still, still, still in prison, waiting to be out. Bill is going to tell his story, so I welcome Bill to be on with us, and I thank you so much for being with us. And audience, I'm introducing right now Bill Daly, who is about to tell his story. Bill, are you on with us? Yes, I am. Thank you very much, Leona. Uh, I thank you for being you. on with us. Hey, thank you. The, the pleasure is all mine. It's an honor. Uh, I'd like to first say uh, thank you, Leona, and the sponsors of Design Convention for giving us lifers a voice. Uh, it means a lot to me, so uh, I will try to keep this going along. Like I said, anytime you, know, you, inter- you want to interject, please do. So I'll start with by saying my name is Henry William Daly, Jr., uh, known by Washington State as 270258. I've grown up as Bill or Billy. Uh, my nickname in prison is Billy Never Never, Never Never standing for Never Never Getting Out of Prison because of my life sentence. Uh, I'll start with uh, my upbringing was uh, by far not the ordinary criminal. My folks are still married, live in Bellevue. Uh, I grew up with three sisters. I was the oldest. I lived with, in a nice home, loving parents, uh, with no substance abuse around me. Never had to go uh, without anything. Uh, had a great childhood. Uh, for some reason, the criminal element was appealing to me. Uh, and then the uh, adrenaline rush, I guess. Drugs became easy money. Uh, didn't have any addiction, addictive nature. Uh, yet under peer pressure, I found myself using acid when I was a teenager for the first time. Uh, after dropping out of high school, I found it difficult to find a job in the workforce. Uh, I didn't mind the work, just had an issue with authority and keeping the schedule. Uh, if, I, if it was nice out, I'd want to go out and, you know, leave, go with no thoughts and consequences and move on to the next job if I got fired. It just 
I really didn't really have a concern about it. Drugs again played a part of uh, my income. Then burglary, theft, all started uh, at a young age and uh, kind of uh, escalated from car prowling to second degree burglary in 1979. Uh, I got a slap on the uh, on the wrist, kind of basically, because I only got 30 days in work release due to the uh, institutions being, you know, on lockdown and one on fire, you know, during a riot. So uh, my my sentencing kind of came off real easy. Uh, uh, once in the culture of dealing and robbing was my next uh, step. Uh, this is where I hooked up with my crime partner, who is now deceased. Uh, robbery seemed to be a, a frequent thing. Uh, it was a combination of, I guess, kind of almost like a a thrill-like thing, an adrenaline rush. At the same time, you know, it, uh, it supported me. Uh, I fast forward to 1984. I was convicted of a first degree armed robbery, uh, sitting in a cell when I saw, uh, my fall, uh, saw my fall partner Speedy and my mugshots, uh, on the breaking news on a local news station. And I was charged with two counts of aggravated murder and one count of aggravated conspiracy to murder. Uh, this is how I find out, how I actually found out that I was being charged with murder was seeing it on the news while I was sitting in prison on another crime. Uh, we were subsequently convicted and sentenced to life without possibility of parole. Uh, so when I when I hear the word life life without uh, life without possibility of parole screams that a person is beyond hope and beyond redemption. And so my first aha moment was uh, when I was returning to the uh, Washington State Reformatory where I was already serving the uh, robbery one, uh, the counselor wanted to see where my head was at after getting convicted of these murder charges. And it, uh, in a matter of minutes of having a conversation with this guy, uh, he came up with some crazy scenario theory that uh, told me basically it wasn't my fault and tried to put the blame on my parents, which was outrageous. I mean, I kind of snapped on him and didn't say too kind of words to him, but... Uh, I thought, you know, what the hell, how is this guy trying to put the blame on somebody else? And, you know, for me, it was like, you know, I got myself into this situation, and uh, it was like one of the, one of the times in my, you know, my heart was kind of tore out, you know, and I immediately went to call my parents up, and just, you know, I'm thinking, hey, you know, you guys, I take responsibility for my actions, and, you know, let them know that, hey, you guys, you're not to the blame, so please don't ever think that. Uh, Can I ask you, a Bill? Can I ask you, how old were you when you first started out in, in doing all these things? Um, probably when I was in uh, junior high, I started with just like the petty crimes. You know, like so you were under 25. Like you you were oh, yeah. under 25 when, when, when these things were happening. Now, when, I, when my, when my uh, convictions for my murders, I was 22. So uh, yeah. the brain science thing hasn't really developed into this state passed beyond 18 years old so well now they are now yeah they are talking about it now uh actually right into the mid-20s where the brain does not really mature but uh as you said too um blaming the parents is something that is easy for people to do when they have not been in the situation and mm -hmm. and also not uh, not to give up on prisoners regardless of of what they've done um, when they're young like like yourself and others, 
everyone makes mistakes, even those in the community that are quick to judge. They make mistakes. Many of them don't get caught, but they do make mistakes. And they and, and some cover up for their loved ones. We have right here, I you know, I was telling someone real quickly, uh, there was there was someone that committed a crime in 1993. Um, she was she came from a long line of judges and lawyers. And if you type her name in the internet now, you never see it because she got away with it. And this is the the right. situation with some of these cases. But I'm going to let you continue because I know your time is short as well. That's right. Yeah, I, I appreciate that because I have actually followed up a lot on the brain science, and uh, I was actually just writing a. Uh, uh, declaration for a guy that's getting ready to do clemency that came into Walla Walla when I when, as just a kid when I was already there for a few years, and I watched how he's developed from a kid that was so impulsive and he was you know basically just had no social skill whatsoever and everything that he did was just seeking attention and granted was seeking attention. And it wasn't until him and I lived together, and I wish I could say I was the one that mentored him, but one of my other cell partners that was with us, we were in a four-man cell then, was a Kent State University graduate and worked on Wall Street. And he took him under his wing, and he just started refocusing his his, uh, his behavior into a positive direction. And we started with music theory and, and grew from there. And, and uh, you know, now the guy's one of these guys that, I would trust with my own family on the streets. And before, I wouldn't trust him anywhere because he was kind of a maniac, but he was a kid. And so I believe that the the brain, the cognitive uh, development of, of kids is just not there. And it takes a while, you know, to, like they say, after 25, for some people, for it to even uh, come to terms. So, you know, it's like it wasn't until I actually came into prison that I realized that I wasn't dumb. I had low self-esteem, uh, low self-worth, and I was one of the people that was a self, you know, was impulsive, uh, thrill-seeker, uh, who had had dulled my emotional behaviors and social development with heroin and cocaine. Uh, but finding myself with that now, uh, what now I began uh, a vocational program in, it must have been like 1984 or 5 in the cosmetology barbering at uh, WSR. And uh, in those days, uh, local colleges or in, around prisons offered all these vocational programs to give guys, you know, opportunities to better themselves while they were doing time in prison, which they don't pretty much do anymore. Anything from uh, drafting design and engineering to computers, auto body, culinary arts. Uh, I mean, the list went on and on. For me, I signed up with the barbershop and cosmetology, and it was kind of my calling. I was good at it. I found it easy. And... Uh, while I was on the streets, I was a silent, kind of a silent partner with my crime partner with three hair salons out there, so the the environment was easy for me to adapt to real quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. I found it easy both. Pardon, did you have a question? Oh, no. I was I was just agreeing okay, with you, you on some of these things. All right. The practical work and the vocational work was easy for me. Uh, it gave me a sense of self-worth, you know, probably for the first time. After achieving my license, I became a TA and, you know, spent uh, probably a couple decades as a TA between uh, Walla Walla and, and Monroe. And uh, it was an, opp- an opportunity for me to help prisoners gain a, skill, a new skill set and mindset and something to fall back once they got out. When I was a TA at Walla Walla, one of the profound things that ever happened to me uh, while I was a TA 
was grading uh, grading a, a, a young black a young man on his, a great haircut. He was doing a practical test preparing for his license. And I pointed out all the aspects of how great he did in his haircut. And he got emotional. I mean, he kind of freaked me out a little bit at first, and I let him kind of wander off and, and caught up to him a little bit later. And I asked him, you know, are you all right? What was that all about? And it, it really kind of shook me a little bit because he told me, he says, you know what, that's the first time in his life that anybody ever had given him a sincere, you know, attaboy and a good job for a job well done. And he was super overwhelmed with it with, you know, mixed emotions for not just the compliment, but more for some feeling, a sense of self-worth probably for his first time too. So I knew then uh, we were both filled with pride, and it was something I felt like this is what I meant to do while I'm, while I'm doing this time. So that was another moment in time thinking that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and I found that uh, the positive path was uh, uh, had great rewards for me, and, and, and uh, I was able to change my negative behaviors into some more positive things. I got involved, and I went back to Monroe, and I got involved with an uh, organization called Prison Awareness Project, which we call PAP. Mm -hmm. I also got involved with uh, Concerns Lifers Organization, and one of our sponsors was Seattle University class. Uh, both these groups, we were able to sit down with college students and talk about crime and punishment, prison culture, uh, the human factor. Uh, prison, prison Awareness Project, uh, I was able to facilitate classes uh, in a 13-word course that we offered to uh, University of Washington's Experimental College and Discovery U. It was there that I was able to find that uh, I had an ability to express emotion uh, as well as find a lack of emotional substance in my past. Uh, University of Washington, or Univer uh, Seattle University, uh, weekly we would discuss current events, uh, dig deep into issues of racism or drug abuse, even dealing with the prison culture's violence. Uh, Washington State Reformer time and time was kind of a model of how prisons should be run, and, uh, and they create, we as prisoners created our own uh, self-help and, you know, dealt with our own social developments. Monroe kind of still has a little bit more to offer than Stafford Creek does here. When I was at uh, Washington State Penitentiary, they didn't have programs like this, and other than, you know, if I was doing, I did a lot of uh, uh, whole time, which is intensive management units or IMU, and there we used to always have to take the same class to get out, which was cognitive behavior change and anger management. Uh, but other than that, uh, we didn't have really programs that we were, you know, uh, prison motivated and, and driven. Uh, so I found a new love. I teach myself music theory and learned how to play drums, bass, piano, and fell in love with a six-string guitar. I've written and composed my own music, and I now play uh, here at Stafford Creek in a diversity band, uh, jazz band. We play smooth jazz and slow blues, and, you know, it kind of heals my soul a little bit. Uh, I even spent quite a few years at Koala Bay in Monroe uh, teaching music theory and guitar to other prisoners. Uh, that's, that's kind of reward. I, I like to teach people things, so that's another thing that's rewarding for me. You know, I'm glad you said that because I have to say one thing. I, I believe prisoners are the best mentors for those out in the community, the youth that are out there messing up. And just like with uh, substance abuse counselors, they make the best ones, those who have been through it. And, and a lot of them have experience because they've, they've dealt with it. 
there's a lot of young people out in the communities today that will not listen to just anybody. But let it be someone that has served time, someone that can actually say, I've been there, I've done it, and I've succeeded in rehabilitating myself. And a lot of prisoners, they do. They rehabilitate themselves because sometimes they're deprived that opportunity by the prison officials at times, the Department of Corrections around the country. But I believe this is one of the reasons why I think life without parole and life sentences should not exist because prisoners that are serving those times, especially like yourself and like Taylor that have been in for so long, are the best ones to be able to get out in the street, find those adolescents, those youth that are messing up, those juveniles, and, and talk to them. You know, have workshops, work with them. And the Department of Corrections, the government itself, should allow you this to happen. seconds remaining. Yeah. They should allow this to happen for all of you. I don't believe in life without all life sentences for people that have served as long as you have, 20 years or more even is, is something. Mm -hmm. But I know yeah. the time is running out, Bill, and I'd like to have you on the show again at some time because um, we want to get this message out from all of you to the public, to the audience, and we have a lot of people listening in that are advocates and also that are, are relatives and friends of those that we are incarcerated during life without parole. So where would you like me to try to call back? I can call back right now if you want. So, so Bill, um, you say you've been in for 30, 36 years now. If, yes. if, you were to, if you were to have the opportunity to come out, how would you feel about mentoring these, these youth that are out on the streets, the juveniles that are messing up? Would you find that difficult to do, or would you find it very easy to do? Actually, um, for me, I, I, know, I don't know about a lot of other people, but for me it would be real easy because uh, where I'm at right now, I'm already doing that. And uh, one of the things that I'm kind of disappointed in this state is uh, one of the uh, directors that runs DOC had taken away the juvenile programs that we had had here. And I tried to create a program up at Kuala Bay uh, Correctional Center, and they approved it at the institution, but from DOC's point, they shot it down because of the liability issue of 18 years or, or and younger. And that's kind of the core target people that we want to get to is the kids before they come to prison, before they uh, make those major mistakes in their life and can't turn back, and get them while they're, you know, dealing with, you know, when we're now understanding the brain science and stuff like that, who else better to sit down with them and, and explain to them, you know, these impulses and these negative choices that you're making and stuff like, this is where you're going to make yourself. I mean, here's a guy that came from Bellevue that uh, is, a, you know, an upper class or place, you know, and I didn't have the violence and all that kind of stuff around me, and I still made the wrong choices, and I still came to prison. And so, you know, we're still, I'm still fighting. we got a new director, and I'm trying to push the juvenile program again and see if we can re-enter that. But for me here, uh, I work with a, a program called uh, Redemption, and what it is is it's a self-awareness project. project. And uh, I kind of got into it for a couple reasons. Uh, first, when I was at Monroe, I took a restorative justice class through uh, Seattle University. Uh, the associate superintendent at that time, Jackie Helcock, sponsored it, and it was based off Howard Zerr's uh, little book of restorative justice. And uh, it was probably one of the most moving things that I've ever gone through. I mean, when she came and talked to us the first time about it, we thought, hey, you know, what a, what a way to give back to the community is go and talk to these people that are uh, community members and, and survivors and, 
and sometimes victims of a crime and to allow us to give them some kind of closure or some kind of healing. Well, I was completely wrong. I mean, I didn't really understand what restorative justice was at that time. And when I went through this program, the stories that I heard from these people pretty much ripped my heart out. And, you know, all the justifications I had for robberies that I've done because, of, you know, I wouldn't rob you for your personal things. I would think I was robbing a corporation like a, a grocery store and stuff. I wasn't causing any harms to you. I was completely wrong. And, you know, uh, I really did cause harm to these people, and I felt like a scumbag, you know, probably for the first time in my mind. And, you know, how I have the, the fear that I, that I posed on communities and, and I harmed many people, not just in my own family, but in their families and traumatized people. And so from there, I learned that I have to look at things differently. And when I got here at uh, Kuala Bay, at Stafford Creek, we had uh, this redemption class. And so when I got involved in redemption, uh, I took a class. It's a 21-week course, course, and it's a self-awareness class, which helps men change the negative ways in their lives and equip them uh, with tools to make positive choices and help others change as well. We work kind of as brotherhood. So once you've been a part of uh, redemption, you always have a brother to go to and, and lean on to talk to. Uh, we also basically try to eliminate the negative cultures in prison uh, is, in essence, making our own community outside prisons, outside the prisons safer. Uh, yes. I hope that the podcast will one day I'll be able to witness an exercise called the spider whip. We have a, a facilitator that does a I don't want to give up too much of it because I like to like not to give up the end of the story on the on the book. But he does this spider whip. He tells his story with a ball of string and you throw it to each person. And when you get to the end of it, it's so uh, profound that it, it it was almost another aha moment for me. It's like wow, you know, this went right in with restorative justice, and it's like this really happened. And uh, so hopefully we're, we'll be able to get him to do this with you and. Uh, it's it's when you hear it and see it, it's just unbelievable. But anyways, redemption's motto is proper direction leads to proper actions. And our mission statement is to repay society for the negative acts that have been committed against uh, committed against it by being prevent others from repeating similar acts. Uh, again, it's a 21 week class and usually has 35 to 40 attending. Uh, we do book work and uh, exercises to help guys uh, see there are positive choices to make. And, and uh, we do discreet resolutions. And uh, and that's another thing, too, is a lot of times that uh, uh, we're able to open doors for these guys that had never been able to even speak in front of a crowd before. Uh, the fun part of that for me is, uh, once I finished the, the 21-week course, I was asked to become a facilitator and took a facilitator's class and, and a mentorship class, and then was offered an opportunity to facilitate the redemption self-awareness class in Stafford Creek's uh, intensive management unit, the whole. Uh, I was a little apprehensive at first because I've spent quite a bit of time in IMU, probably almost 10 years worth of whole time in isolation. Uh, but thinking back to all the years I spent locked away in IMU, 
the sensory deprivation, panic attacks and all that, how could I refuse? I knew what it was to have somebody you know to come into the unit. And uh, so I knew the guys there would rejoice to be able to see me and, uh, you know, walk inside their pod. And I walked into it for the first time, though. I have to admit, I was a little bit nervous. Uh, I felt weird walking into a, an IMU that, you know, spent years in with no handcuffs on. And, you know, and at that moment I realized that, that uh, I was one of eight prisoners in the whole, whole nation, uh, not just Washington State, but walking into a maximum custody unit to facilitate a 13-week program to eight prisoners cuffed and shackled to the desk, bolted down to the floor, is unheard of. So we were doing something that was uh, unique and probably the first time it's ever been done anywhere in the nation. So uh, my first class, thank God, I knew six of the prisoners that I'd done a lot of time with in the hall, and they were actually relieved to see that I was out uh, there to help them facilitate this program. And I love the program down there uh, because with a smaller group like that, it allows us to get real deep and it opens up the, uh, the doors to dialogue between prisoners who might not have ever spoken to one another, you know, like conflicting gang members and and different ethnic races and stuff like that. I've never had an opportunity to see that they, you know, have a lot in common. Uh, I was able to, uh, uh, from then on, the superintendent at that time created this mentorship program. And so some of these guys, usually when you get out of an IME, you don't go to a medium facility. You would go to a close custody facility. And so she allowed us, these guys that completed these courses and classes in IMU, redemption being one of them, and asked that if I would be able to mentor them when they came to my unit. And I said, by all means. So they would actually have me sit down in their classification meetings, and we would sit down and work out what their work schedules were going to be, what kind of programs that they were going to be taking, and their responsibilities and stuff like that, which was kind of odd for me to be sitting there doing that. But, you know, I was sitting there with an associate superintendent, superintendent, custody, uh, the unit survivors, uh, supervisors, and the sergeants, and the counselors, and they're asking me to be part of this, and I was like, okay, I'll do this, you know, if it was giving a guy an opportunity to come from, you know, maximum unit to close custody and, and have the opportunities that this institution gives us, by all means, I was for it. So, um, I think that is excellent. You know, I would love to be able to see a proposal written by you and some of the others that have done so much good work to have a proposal so that we can get that also that maybe Department of Corrections across the country can follow suit because it doesn't always work with every Department of Corrections. Some prisoners are being denied the right to be able to take correspondence courses, educational, to be able to work, to be able to do a lot of the things that you're doing. And another thing I'd like to ask you, don't you think that if you can do such good work in the prison setting that you've been doing, that these things can actually be done in a long-term residential treatment program outside of a prison setting? Well, redemption program actually is uh, being utilized in actually some corporate businesses, and uh, there are programs right now on the streets that are utilizing the same program that, and what they are is facilitators that were from here. And these are guys that are doing juvenile programs and uh, reentry programs. And uh, uh, 
safe not safe houses, but uh, 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 work release houses and uh, uh, substance abuse. So are they former houses. prisoners? Are they former prisoners that have started their own um, their own aftercare resource, supportive aftercare resources, or is it uh, are they being overseen by uh, some some um, you know well, either prison? With, with the way the budgets are and stuff like that, I have a friend of mine right now that's actively searching to buy a house right here in the Aberdeen area to house up to nine people for a clean and sober house. And DOC is on board with them. And uh, so there's actually quite a few people. Uh, a friend of mine that used to do the Seattle University uh, class with me years and years ago got a clemency off of first-degree murder. And he's now uh, the president of the Seattle chapter of the NAACP. And uh, so, you know, for people to think that guys that are, you know, like they say, unredeemable and, and thrown away for the rest of their lives, they can't get out there and do something good. Here's a guy that did a life sentence, and he's out there, and he's the president of the NAACP in the Seattle chapter. Excuse me. See, this is just an example, another example of, of prisoners being worth something, of value. And unfortunately, so many people in society, they don't look at these things. And this is why it's good that you're on and that, that some of the others will be coming on because, as I say, they need to, the people in the public, in the communities, in the, on the Facebook and on the social media, they need to hear these things because they need to know that you men and women too, I'm sure, uh, you're, you're valuable, and, and to be spending the rest of your lives in prison does not even make sense. And unfortunately, we need to get people to start calling the legislature and start, you know, start making it making it a mandatory issue that they need to do away with life without parole and life sentences in most cases, because there's no sense in, in skillful, talented, educated people like yourselves to be spending all your life in prison when there's so many people in the free world that need to hear from you, that need to be mentored from you. These adolescents and juveniles in the communities today, they are so lost, and they can relate to what all of you are about because that's where you all started out. So I hope and pray that the audience is going to take heed in what you're seeing, what everyone's seeing that's calling in from the prison or for whatever it may be. And, again, put a proposal together to let people know in what ways they can actually help all of you as well. Well, for for the people in uh, in Washington State, one of the biggest things there's there's been a movement for the last five years for a second chance bill, and uh, the Senator Jeannie Darnell, she has been kind of the uh, lead on this uh, proposal or this uh, legislative bills, and this January this bill will be presented again as 5819 Senate Bill 5819. And this bill here, uh, even though they've dropped out from life, with, life without parole, they really, I was, I actually wrote her a letter and thanked her for the efforts that they did in trying to, um, appease the, the, the legislation on guys like me doing life without possibility of parole and, and the things that we're doing. Uh, concerned lifers that did a good job in, in, uh, speaking and proposing for the same bill. So there is a movement out there, and so people can get involved. And they just need to get a hold of their legislators and say, hey, wait a minute, why are these guys still in prison? They're not not—they're not a threat to society. I mean, we have to look at the facts. The facts are the brain science is there for these guys that start out as uh, youthful 
And, you know, they keep using this 1913 uh, legislative bill back then that said that you're an adult at 18. Well, not necessarily. You know, that's I, beginning, I yeah, that's I was, beginning to that's beginning to change. Even in Massachusetts, they're passing bills. And, and the, the thing is, they're passing bills to abolish life without for parole for those who have served 25 years or more. And it's an excellent, but there's a lot of people out there that are protesting against it, are furious about it. But what, what's happening is they're stereotyping. They're, they're stereotyping and they're, they're looking at all prisoners as being the same, no good criminals, animals, whatever that might be. And they, they need to look at the, the cases, the age, they need to look at a lot of variations in these in these cases. But there is a lot well, being done in in uh, in Massachusetts as well as other, uh, some of the others, Pennsylvania, California, the same. You know, and hopefully with hearing your stories, this will even make it even a lot more easier to decide on how to see, how to. Uh, yeah, 36 years ago when I fell, they had a, a, a parole board, but because of life without, I'm not eligible for parole board. But they're trying to bring the parole board back, and that's exactly what they did with the 18 years and younger with the juveniles that uh, did fit under the, the uh, Miller versus Alabama and and uh, were deemed parolable and, and you know uh, you know told that it's unconstitutional to put a, a juvenile you know in prison for the rest of life, let alone execute them, and uh, so. Mm -hmm. You know that science is there. It's it's growing. I don't know why Washington hasn't followed California. California went to 23 years old and implemented theirs. Then immediately went within a year and a half to 25 years and younger. And what they're doing is taking them and put them under the parole board. The parole board makes a decision on whether they're parolable now or not. Because there's going to be guys who sit in prison, and those are the ones that the news sensationalizes and and then groups us all together and says, yeah, they're all like that. Exactly you're, not, you're, you're not. You're not. It's not. Yeah, it's not the case. Also, also, the parole board needs to be reformed because what's happening is that with the parole board, they're putting a lot of law enforcement. They're putting a lot of people that are all for harsh crime, are being harsh with crime, and they need to start changing the the uh, changing it up so that there's more people in the community that's involved in it. There's more psychologists, social workers involved in it. It shouldn't have to be law enforcement that's involved in, in making the decisions on the parole board. That's another issue, right. and uh, it, it's 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 just not right. I think that they need to work on that. Also, I've been interviewing Stephen Bobo. I don't know if you're familiar with him or if you've heard of him. Stephen Bobo was a correction officer, and he himself, when he uh, was working for the department, he ended up going to prison himself for bringing drugs into the prison. And he is out now, and he's been advocating to prevent uh, uh, the, uh, the school-to-prison pipeline. And at some point in time, I'd like to have Stephen and all of you connect so that maybe you could all seem to plan, uh, plan some kind of a thing to work together when you do come out. And I believe that the, you, all of you that are doing this, that the life is, I believe you will be coming out. And this would be perfect to do it nationally, to, to prevent these adolescents, these young people from going to prison and being in adult prison. And I hope that that's something that you can all come together and, and decide on. You can talk to Taylor and Cecilia about it. But these are these are major issues, and I think it would be so successful. And I think the government would be able to help with the funding. If not, there's a lot of philanthropists out there that would be all for the cause and that would help with the funding of those programs that you initiate. I agree. 
One of the other things, too, that, uh, that I always want to try to impress to that are listening is that if you... You have 60 seconds remaining. Uh, family is huge. Uh, my parents have been, you know, by my side for 35 years, 11 months, 21 days, and 14 hours approximately, and always wow. been by my side. That makes a huge difference. Another thing, Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy, wrote, understandably, each of us are more than the worst thing we've ever done. And that's a profound statement. And uh, so in closing, I'd like to say the habit of responding to the inner desire to make a difference. You have 30 seconds remaining. To extend our influence to the people and causes we most value all begins with mindset or an attitude, a choice, a choice to use the voice of influence. And that, I say, I thank you to you for giving us that voice. Thank you. Thank you so much. But you know something, it's you, all of you that are doing it yourselves. And I really, I honor all of you. I really do. Right. And I hope someday we'll be able to have you on again.